at when Jesus sent out the disciples. And um, what, that, what that meant, what it looked like. Uh, so this is when he sent out the uh, 72. Now, some people believe that sending out the 72 and the 70 were the exact same thing. Um, I think that's debatable. I don't think there's enough evidence uh, one way or the other. But I, I kind of personally lean towards sending out the 70. Sending out the 72 were two different moments. Okay? Um, but we definitely know for sure, even if that's not the truth, we definitely know for sure that sending out the 12 and sending out the 70 were completely different moments. Right? Jesus sends out the 12 and he sends out the 70. In fact, one of the things about sending out the 12, and we, and we may look at that a little bit tonight, one of the things about sending out the 12 is when Jesus sends out, sends out the 12 disciples, um, he said to them, only go to um, the, the Israelites. Only go to the Jews when he sent out the disciples. And then he sends out the 70, and he doesn't put that uh, parameter to it. Any ideas why? They're going to go out and minister. They're going to go out and talk about the kingdom of God coming. Uh, those kind of things. So wh- why would he tell the disciples to only pr- preach to the Jews, but when he sends out the 70 or the 72, he doesn't say that? Uh, no, they, it probably wasn't. We don't know for sure, but it probably wasn't. Okay, I think that's, yeah, I think that's part of the reason. He tells, him, he tells the 12 disciples to go out uh, before, like months before he, he sends the 70. Okay, that's, that's kind of part of the reason why he sends them only to the Jews. Yes, sir? Yeah, that's, that's it. They get first dibs. Um, you, you see Paul do the same thing. When Paul landed in a city, where did he always go first? To, to the synagogues. He went to the Jews. Um, the Jews are God's people, and, and God always gives the Jews um, the, the opportunity. And with the gospel, he gives them first stab at this. We see this constantly where Jesus, I think it was either last week or the week before that, I read about where Jesus went to the Jewish people. Um, but uh, yeah, last week where he goes to the, to the lady that asked for her daughter to be healed, he goes to the Jews and then he kind of pushes against the Gentile thing, but then he, then he uh, heals her. And so we, don't, we can't say that Jesus only went to the Jews because he didn't. He was very particular about it. In fact, the uh, woman at the well was not a Jewish person. Um, that was part of the deal with her was she wasn't Jewish and she was a woman. Here he goes again. And, uh, and everybody was freaking out by it. Um, but Jesus did go to non-Jewish people, but he always went to the Jews first. And he tried to get them to see who he was. They're, they're still his people, and th- that's who he is. He's Jewish. That's, that's one of the things that I never understood at different times through history. And you even see it all the way up into um, uh, Nazism during World War II, where the reason that they, they're killing the Jews was because the Jews killed Jesus. That, that makes no sense. First, the Romans killed Jesus. Uh, under the Jewish instruction, yeah, there's no doubt about that. The Jews were more than complicit. They were the impetus behind it. But Jews did not nail those nails through his hands. 
In fact, they couldn't. According to the law, they couldn't. So they got the Romans to do it. <clears throat> What's that? They would have stoned him. Yes. And, and one time they tried to throw him off a cliff. I guess that one's okay. Right? Um, in fact, when they tried to throw him off the cliff, that's a cool little scene. Because it says they gathered together and tried to cast him off the cliff, but he walked through them. Walked through the middle of them. I don't know. I would like to have seen that moment, right? I don't know if that was a, um, you know, like a high noon kind of, you know, that kind of thing. I don't know, but he just like walked right through, and they're, they're, they're wanting to throw him off the cliff. In fact, this is one of the cool things that I saw when, when I was in Israel and we were on the Sea of Galilee. I'm looking around. I've talked about some of this before, but this is why Lynn and I are trying to get, we're trying to get a trip together for, to take anybody in the church that wants to go, and we're going to take a trip to Israel. Um, obviously, it's going to cost some money and things like that, but guys, I've always been about that. I always want to go to Israel and everything until I went, and then I realized this is something that will change you forever. There, there's certain things about standing in certain places in Israel that will change you. you it, it's mind-boggling. So we're going to see a Galilee. I look over here, and I see the hillside over here, and I'm, and I'm thinking through Scripture, and I realize that had to have been where Jesus does the uh, Sermon on the Mount. If you were on the Sea of Galilee right now, and I just took you around in a circle and said that you would, you would see what I'm saying, there, there's, no, there's not other places where the Sermon on the Mount would have been. It would have been there. And it comes right down to the Sea of Galilee, which is a small lake, by the way. So it gets called a sea, but it's really a small lake. And then you look on the very opposite side. So there's the hillside with the Sermon on the Mount. You look on the very opposite side over here, and there's these cliffs, these big cliffs that come out. That's the only cliffs we saw anywhere until you get into the very, very southern part of Israel. Those are the only cliffs. So when this scripture says that they tried to throw Jesus off the cliffs, I know where they did it. Right there. I saw it. I looked right at them. It's the only cliffs there are. And in my head, I'm seeing little Jesus up there like, you know, walking. So, I don't know. So, uh, Jesus always, he, his people are the Jewish people, and he's trying to get them to know him. In fact, this is just, this is a coincidence. This is, there's just too many things that just line up in Scripture. When you really begin, just take one subject and just trail, start in Genesis and just trail through Scripture. And you'll be amazed at how it ties things together from Genesis to Revelation. And then go to another subject and, and, and go all the way through Scripture. And it ties together so amazingly. Um, that's why, what are those, the Bible codes, you guys remember the Bible codes? Um, I, I read some of that stuff and, and there's some amazing things in the Bible codes. That I, you know, I, it's not my... I think you got a bunch of, bunch of math, math, mathematicians sitting around saying, hey, let's try this. And then it works and it freaks them out, so they write a book about it, right? Um, it feels like that to me, where it's not like super spiritually profound, but it is profound in the sense that God's Word, th this is one of the things that I, years ago as a youth pastor, I, said, I would teach this to teenagers. God's Word is true in, in four dimensions, no matter which way you cut it, God's Word is true. In other words, if you take something, you go all the way through God's word this way. What are you doing, Zach? Goodness. So, pretend like he's not there. So if you take God's word and you go through it this way, like, like the book's closed, right? And you're looking at the cover and it says, um, Holy Bible, right? Um, if you go through it this way, in other words, you take something, a subject. In the Bible code, you take a word. You take a number, 
And you take the number three and you go all the way through scripture, everywhere the number three is, and you look it up and you define that. So you need a Bible dictionary, not just uh, like a lexicon or something, but you need a Bible dictionary. And you go through and you see everywhere every the con- It's amazing how that number three is so powerfully consistent all the way through. This is one of the times when I, I got, when I understood this concept is when I was looking at this and then I looked at, uh, so Jesus says that he's going to forgive us and our, and our sins will be washed clean as white as snow. Well, three has to do with the Trinity and almost always has to do with cleaning, cleansing. And, and then you look at um, a crystal and the concept of three sides of a crystal. And, and I don't know if this is in the Bible codes or not, but this is the one that got me, is you just take something, one, one thing like that, just snow, take it all the way through Scripture, take the word three and take it, and it's amazing how they match up all the way through Scripture. And, and wrapped around clean, cleansed. Those kind of things, all the way through Scripture. It's, um, it's powerful. So then you open the Bible this way, and you read it linear, and everything matches up from Genesis to Revelation linearly. It does that. Okay. Um, then there's all kinds of other things that when you unfold Scripture, God does things through Scripture that, that is amazing and surprising, and He's trying to show us stuff. We're, we're going to break this down when He sent the 12 out, because there's a lot of things He's trying to show us. He's not just... You're not just saying, oh, this is what they did. Remember, this is the story of how we're supposed to think and act and believe. Okay? I'll give you another one in Scripture before I jump into this because you asked. Um, this is one that got me when I... So I took Greek and Hebrew. You have to do that um, when you want to do what I'm doing, I guess. I don't know. But you have to take Greek and Hebrew. And really, it's actually a waste of time. Let me explain that to you. You ask a legitimate Greek and Hebrew professor nowadays, and they'll tell you you can get more out of your computer than you can learn in half a lifetime. There's just so much. Like, like in my Bible program, there are, I have 30 or 40 resources that are just Hebrew resources. They're like Hebrew dictionaries, Hebrew, all kinds of stuff. Same with Greek. And, and they'll tell you if they're, if they're legitimate about it. You know, it's not job security, but it's, it's uh, legitimate to say you don't need to take all that. You can just click one button on your mouse and you can get all Greek and Hebrew stuff you need. So here's something you ought to try to, well, you would have to, Hebrew, I'm going to explain it to you in Hebrew, but Hebrew is not the way to understand it because you got, Hebrew is not like Greek. You and I can all read Greek some, even if you haven't taken Greek, right? You understand what I'm saying? Hebrew you can't because it's little lines, right? Like things like that. So, but trust me or look it up somehow yourself. When I stumbled across this, it, it, it threw me for a loop. So what's the longest uh, chapter in the Bible? Psalms 119. Where is it, basically? Middle of the Bible. Okay? Um, so Psalms 119, if you, have a, if you have a paper Bible near you, there's probably one on the scene. Open up to Psalms 119. I'm going to show you some things. You, you're only going to get a piece of it. You can't get the whole thing. Um, but I want you to visually see something when you turn to Psalms 119, okay? It's broke down into sections, right? Now, this is actually one of the places in the Bible where there was sections built in. Most of the sections that we see in the Bible are done by translators later and were not part of the original manuscripts, okay? Chapters were not part of the original manuscript. Verses were not part of the original manuscript, all that kind of stuff. But these sections in Psalms 119 are, um, were original, okay? So 
so somebody that's got that open, do you see a section? Do you see, is, is yours broken a section? What's above the first section? I don't have it open on mine, so I'm going to let you tell me. What? A lif. Okay. Okay. That is the first letter of the Hebrew alphabet. All right. Now, pause right there and let's go to Greek so you can understand this. What is the first letter of the Greek alphabet? Alpha. What does that word mean? Beginning. Okay. Um, what does the letter A in English mean? Nothing. Because our language doesn't do that. Okay. This is important that you understand the difference. Our language doesn't do that. Alpha is the first letter of the Greek alphabet. It is the letter A. It is alpha. It's the letter alpha. And, but it also has a meaning. It means beginning. What's the last letter of the Greek alphabet? Omega. What does omega mean? Ending. Kind of cool. Kind of makes sense, right? If you're Greek, you're like, well. But for us, we're like, that's cool, because ours doesn't do that. Z doesn't mean ending, okay? Um, unless you're British, and then it means Z, which still doesn't mean anything. So, um, so Greek, each letter means something. It has a, it's a word. It's not just a letter. It's a word, and it means something. Hebrew is the exact same way. Hebrew is a word, and it means something, okay? Now, here's the cool part. Go, look, in, look down to the next section. What's the heading of the next section? Okay, are you seeing a pattern here? Right? A is the first section. This is English. A is the first section. What's the next section? B, okay? Second letter of the alphabet. It, it doesn't, it, it changes quickly after that, but... So... But in Hebrew, it doesn't. It's still A, B, C, D, E, or in their alphabet. It's not our alphabet. It's their alphabet, okay? And here's, here's something pretty cool about this. The letter A in Hebrew has a meaning. If you could see this right now in Hebrew, okay, and you could Google this on your phone if you wanted to. If you could see this in Hebrew right now, that first section has the heading Aleph on there, and every sentence in, well, in Hebrew, it starts on this side, and you read this way. But every sentence at the beginning, the beginning letter of every sentence in that section starts with the letter Aleph. Okay? And every sentence in that section has the basic definition of the word Aleph. And it goes to the next letter. And when you read in English, it doesn't work this way. It, it kind of does if you start kind of, like if you, if you categorized each sentence and said this is kind of what that's about, you would start to see patterns. But if you're reading in Hebrew, it is very easily seen and very easily understood. Okay, so let's go back to Greek. It would be the same thing as alpha being at the top of the section. Every sentence starts with the letter alpha, and every sentence has basically the context of beginning. And it does that entirely all the way through Psalms 119. But here's the thing. What is the basic theme of, the, of Psalms 119? God's Word. Now, think about those three things all wrapping together and staying consistent from beginning to end. That would be difficult enough to do in one chapter like this, which is very, very long. But it would be very difficult to do and keep consistent with the entire rest of the Bible. And it doesn't flow away from the Bible. So every, in Greek, 
not in Hebrew, but in Greek, alpha, everything has to do with beginning. It starts with A. Second, starts with B. Everything has to do with that. And it goes all the way through, all the way to the end. And the fact, this, this isn't coincidence. It's just God saying, I'm just cool this way. It's also right in the middle of the Bible. Splits the Bible right in the middle. Everything about it is the Word going both directions. It is the Bible. It is the definition of God's Word all wrapped up in one chapter. And it's all put together in such a way that I don't think a human being could do that by himself. Just that one chapter. All right. Doesn't it? Let's go to Luke chapter 10. Verse 1. After these things. Uh, do you know what things he's talking about here? Jesus was just doing miracles. Okay. After these things, the Lord also appointed 72 others, and he sent them out two by two before him into every town and place where he was about to go. This is also another reason why the disciples went to the Jews, and these guys are going to um, everybody. And you understand, part of the 72 is the 12, right? The 12 are in the 72. First, it's just the 12. They go to just the Jewish people. Then Jesus says, now this time I'm going to send you out. I'm going to send uh, all 70 plus of you. And uh, you're going to go, you're going to preempt me. You're going to be the, um, the uh, forward, forward, what's that called in the military? Forward what? Taking point, yeah, that kind of thing. Forward, but, but, it's, but none of you guys are saying the word I want to hear. Forward something. So, the forward group. That's the military term, forward group. Okay. So, he says, um, I'm going to send you to every town and place where, where he was about to go. Now, why would he send them ahead of him on this? Okay, they're preparing for his arrival in a few different ways. I would say they're physically preparing for his arrival, but that's not the most important. He's spiritually, they're spiritually preparing for his arrival. They're talking about who he is. Now, everybody in these, in these whole areas have heard of Jesus already. They're going ahead, and they're, in my opinion, they're saying things like, you've heard of this Jesus doing all kinds of miracles. How do we know that everybody in that area has heard about him? First, Scripture says that in a few different ways, but we also have... A non-biblical source here called Josephus that writes about this. And Josephus is, at, at certain times, he is over 150 miles away, and Jesus is famous where he is. And he writes about that, that Jesus is known everywhere. In fact, Josephus talks about how Jesus is known in Rome. He's, he's very popular. Okay, why? Because he's healing everybody he comes to. He, he's... There's nobody that, that, that he's not just impacting their life. So he sends them ahead and he says to them, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Now this to me is, is important that we see this, that we kind of take this uh, systematically here, because I believe Jesus is telling us these exact same things. I believe that Jesus is, is sending you and I out. We're part of this 72, Okay. He's sending you and I out. Now, we do see at the end of time um, that he is going to do one last um, effort to where he's going to try to reach the Jews. How do we know that? Okay. 
soon as I say it, you'll know. Witnesses, the two, yeah. They have the two witnesses, and then they get killed. And they lay in the streets for three days. What, what happens after that? 144,000. Who are these 144,000? They're Jews. And they're sent all over the world as evangelists all over the world. Now, here's the thing. Who are they sent out to evangelize? I believe everybody. But they're going to focus on the Jews. And part of the reason is because this is at the end, this is at the middle of the uh, tribulation, the three and a half year point. And the, the um, Antichrist has been revealed, at least to the Jewish people, if not everybody else, at least to the Jewish people. Because see, I don't believe the Antichrist will be revealed as a negative to the Muslims. There's a great book, I mention this every now and then, it's called The Islamic Antichrist, by I believe Joel Richardson is his name. Um, he talks about this, that, that, that the, the Muslims across the world will see the Antichrist as their Messiah. It's in their scriptures. And he systematically walks through the Quran and shows you the scriptures about their Messiah and how they match up directly in Daniel, Ezekiel, and Revelation to, to the Antichrist. Word for word, they're the same thing, but two different directions. Okay? The Antichrist reveals himself to at least the Jewish people, and, and I would think, I would hope, Christians that have been saved at this point, um, that he is, he is the Antichrist. He's, he's possessed by Satan at this point. Satan possesses him at the three and a half year mark. So then 144,000 Jewish uh, evangelists go out across the planet, and the largest harvest of Jews ever in the history of mankind will happen during the last three and a half years of the tribulation because it was revealed to them, this is not our Messiah. They thought it was. This is not our Messiah. So if he's not the Messiah, there's only one other option. He's got to be the Antichrist. Therefore, the book of Revelation is true. Therefore, the New Testament is true. Therefore, Jesus is the Messiah. Right? Okay. Now, up until then, from, from the time of Jesus until the end of time, we are told to go into the world and preach the gospel. He sends the 12 out, and, and this is the exact pattern that we're supposed to follow. He sends the 12 out ahead of him. Isn't that what we're doing now? We're going out ahead of Jesus. You say, well, no, Jesus already came. Remember, what is the theme of the Old Testament? Jesus is coming. What's the theme of the New Testament? Jesus is coming back. He's coming again. Okay. So Jesus has established the gospel now, and just like he sends out the disciples to preempt Jesus, um, we are supposed to do the same thing. We are going out declaring that Jesus is coming back. Remember something simple like communion declares this. Communion is very eschatological. He says, every time you do this to remember me and declare me until I come. Right? This, the, the, preach the gospel, go into all the world, make disciples, make disciples of lost people. That's really the only true way you can make a disciple, is you start with a lost person and you make them a disciple. You don't start with a bunch of saved people and have classes. That's, a, that's American church thinking. You go into the world to lost people and make disciples. Preach to them, develop them, live life with them as they grow in the Lord. And then they're going to do the same thing. They're going to make disciples while you're still discipling them. They're going to make disciples too. 
Okay? So he says the same thing. He says, go before me. Make sure that everybody knows. And here's the thing. The harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Guys, we know this. We know this in a very basic sense. Every, every Christian knows this. There are a lot more people out there that are not saved that need Jesus, and very few people are actually taking the gospel to them. We know this. Not to overly pick on us or condemn us as a church or whatever. Guys, we know that this is the, way, this is the easiest way to get there. I'll ask it this way. If the future, if the next generation was dependent upon how many people you witness to and every human, every Christian on the planet witnessed to exactly the same amount of people that you witnessed to in your lifetime, how many people will be saved in the next generation? That's sobering, is it not? If, the, if we only just took however many you witnessed to and everybody did that, would the church be moving forward or would it not? Would the next generation have more people saved or less people saved or like 10 people saved? You, you see what I'm saying? It gets very convicting because he says this. Jesus, Jesus is the one saying this. The harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. We, we've got to have people telling people about Jesus. That's your job, it's my job. We've got to tell people about Jesus. So then he says, Therefore, ask the Lord of the harvest that he send out workers into the harvest. Now, this is an interesting way to, for Jesus to say this. First, he says, the harvest is plentiful, the workers are few. So pray that God will send people into the harvest. If you are obedient to Jesus and you pray for people being sent into the harvest, what is the first thing Jesus is going to do? Huh? He's going to send you. And see, sometimes we don't think about it and Jesus is like, gotcha. Because the Holy Spirit's not going to go, okay, you want people to get saved and you want me to send. Who could I, who could I find? Well, you're the one asking. Start with you. So really what you're doing is you're saying, Lord, send me into the harvest field. But not just me. We've got to have other people in the harvest field too. We've got to have people telling others about Jesus. We've got to. Okay? <clears throat> Verse 3, go, behold, I am sending you out like lambs in the midst of wolves. This, this sentence is why I'm reading this tonight. This is the sentence that's, that's been jumping out at me with this. And part of what I was talking about at the very end of the message Sunday, about that, there are, that if we truly love God, we've got to love, first according to Scripture, we've got to love Christians. But we also have to love our neighbors who are not Christians as we love ourselves. And so this, this season that we're in, there, there is a balance between, because you're going to see here in just a second, there's a balance between letting people make their own decisions and, and, and if they refuse Jesus, move to the next person. There's a balance between that and, but you still got to love and care for that person. And, and I don't know exactly where the balance is. I don't. Because Jesus is going to say some pretty strong things here about move on. If they don't want me, move on. Now, we'll get to that. I don't want to rush that. So, he says, I'm sending you out like lambs in the midst of wolves. This is how we are in society today. I really believe that the church is like lambs and we're amongst wolves. What happens to lambs when they're in a group of wolves? 
get eaten. You're like, Jesus, that's not, that's not real cool. Couldn't you have said something like, we're like tanks in the middle of pop gun shooters? Remember when Paul was headed to Rome and the guy comes up to Paul and prophesies and the guy is completely prophetically on track. He is right. He takes uh, his belt or Paul's belt off or something and he, and he takes Paul's hands and he wraps his hands up and ties his hands up and he said, Paul, this is how you're going to go to Rome. And he's saying it from the point of view, Paul, please don't do this. You're going to die in Rome if you go. That's where you're going to die. What does Paul say? I know. I know that's what I'm doing. I'm not, I'm not running away from the challenge. I know that's what I'm doing. But everybody in that group was like, no, Paul, that's not, don't, you wouldn't want to do that. Doesn't it sound a lot like when Jesus said, okay, guys, um, I'm going to give my life. And they're like, no, don't do that. And, and that's when, that's when um, Jesus rebukes Peter. And he says, Peter, you're thinking according to your brains, according to human thinking. This isn't about human thinking. And guys, this is where it gets a little difficult for us. I really believe as we progress in our society. Now, I am praying, praying, praying that, um, that Trump gets reelected and that Amy Coney Barrett gets appointed and all these things. But I don't think it's all going to get better. I think it'll get a little better. It won't at first. First three or four months will be horrible. I think it'll get a little better after that. But I don't think it's going to get long-term better. I think it's going to get a lot worse. Because why? Evil is... is has grown in power in our country. Darkness, sin, immorality has grown in power in our country. I, got, I saw a great uh, video. Um, Dr. Matthews sent it to me of a Catholic priest that stood up and preached on um, uh, why Catholic Biden is not a Catholic, why he's not a Christian, and why you cannot vote for this. And he systematically goes through Scripture, and the biggest thing he focuses on he says, you cannot be for abortion and be a Christian. You can't. You're, you're murdering babies. You're complicit in murdering babies if you do that. I am hoping and praying that you all have voted yes on 115. Is that what it was? Please vote yes on 115. The only thing it does is pull back late term. It doesn't take abortion off the table. It just pulls back late term. But all you can do is what you can do at the time. And you keep attacking and pushing and attacking and pushing because these are children. These are babies. Can you imagine a baby being aborted the day before mom gives birth? A full nine-month-old baby. And, it's, and Colorado is one of seven states that, that is legal to murder a baby the day before it's a. Uh, Guys, there is going to come a time when it's going to get worse and worse, and we are going to be the lambs, and they are the wolves. And this is where it's difficult, because quite honestly, I own, I own a lot of guns. You understand what I'm saying? When the wolves come to get the lambs, I don't know, I, I'm not, I don't think I'm just going to go, all right, you know, kill me. I don't, I don't know how this works. I mean, I don't think we're there yet, but I will say this. I think we're a lot closer to that than most people in our country realize. So here's the thing. How are, as Christians, we're, Jesus is telling us, I'm sending you out like lambs among the wolves. I do not believe that means we don't defend ourselves. I don't believe that. I believe you have, I believe you have a God-given right to protect. 
And specifically, men, you're supposed to protect your family, you're supposed to protect your um, spouse and your kids. I believe that. And I have, I have an arsenal to take this on with. There's a good chance, though, I don't know for sure, I don't know how this is going to play out, but there's a good chance if Biden gets elected, all my guns may be stolen that next day. I don't know for sure, and then I won't have any. Okay. He said, go, behold, I'm sending you out like lambs in the midst of wolves. Now, here's some interesting things, okay? Do not carry a money bag or a traveler's bag or sandals and greet no one along the road. Why why does he say that? What does that even mean? What's he trying to say to us there? What's he saying to the 72? What's he saying to us? Let me read again. Do not carry a money bag or a traveler's bag or sandals. And greet no one along the road. So here's the things you don't have. What's the first one? Money. You're like a money bag. No, you keep money in a money bag. You don't have money. What's the next thing you don't have? Change of clothes, whatever, toothbrush? Bacon? You don't have, that. maybe bacon. You don't, because you can put that in your belt. You can hang that in your belt. So... You don't have money, you don't have a change of clothes, and you don't have shoes. I don't think it just says sandals. So I guess, okay, maybe extra because you're carrying, all right? So we're saying carrying? Because I think maybe he's saying don't even wear shoes. <laughs> New, Living, <laughs> New Living Translation, second edition, all right. So money bag, traveler's bag, or sandals. So, okay, let's say you have sandals, but you don't have extra sandals. I don't think you have sandals, but whatever. And then greet no one along the road. Why? Why would you, why would you not take all these things, and why would you greet no one along the road? I'm hearing lots of stuff. What slows you down? Taking all that stuff does. I saw a quote the other day, and I can't remember. It's from, a, it's from an old Greek philosopher, I think it was. And it said something about, um, if all you ever have is what you can carry on your own back, you will never be held down to do the right thing. Never be held down so you can't do the right thing. In other words, jump and run when you need to, whatever the case is. The, the scripture that we, that we always use, be instant in season, out of season, the church uses that all the time for what? What? Preaching. It's always used for preaching. But I think the scripture is way bigger than that. If you're instant in season and out of season, you are ready to respond to God under any circumstance at any time to do whatever he asks you to do. I think Luke and I were talking today. They're going to, Luke will be transferred in a couple years. And, um, and I told him, I said, um, I, I really hope I live in Colorado Springs the rest of my life. Now, why would I say I hope? I can make my own decisions, right? Why don't I just stay here the rest of my life? Because if I, if I truly say, God, I belong to you, and guys, by the way, this should apply to every one of us in this room. We love to apply it to preachers, pastors, missionaries, but not the, not the regular people. If I call myself God's servant and I'm willing to do whatever he wants me to do, that doesn't just mean Preach about him in Walmart. He may say, I need you to go 
And wherever that go is, that's, I have to be obedient to that. And I, I really do. I don't, I don't mean this. Um, I don't see it as a negative, but I really do hope I stay right here the rest of my life. I hope I am the pastor of Church of Briargate the rest of my life, and I don't want it to be a short life. I want to be here the rest of my life. But if God says, you got to do this, then i got to do that. Linda's father left for the mission field at 48. Chris, how old were you when you went to Africa? 58. When he went to Africa, be a missionary. So you leave America and all the stuff at America at 58. You should be getting you a Tempur-Pedic bed and a daily massage at 58. Right? So we can only pray. So... <laughs> So here's the thing, guys. What if, what if God calls you? Here's the, here, let's start at the very beginning. Are you even willing? You've got to ask yourself that. I can't assess that for you. Are you even willing to do what God tells you to do? If he says go. If he says, right now I need you to go. Here's something I've had a lot of conversations with pastors about over the years. It's amazing how many pastors have a geographical um, circumference of uh, obedience to God. And they won't go outside of that. I've, 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 I've talked to people right here in Colorado Springs that'll tell you, yeah, I'm, I'm looking for a church to pastor or whatever. Where are you looking? In Colorado Springs. Are you looking anywhere else? No. Does God only want you in Colorado Springs? And here's the question. Have you even asked God? Have you even asked him? I know many pastors that will not get more than about an hour from where they grew up. Have you even asked God? Where, is he, where does he want you? Where is he sending you? What are you supposed to be doing? Are we willing to be the worker in the harvest field and go wherever he tells us to go? That's, that can be difficult. It can be tricky. And what, what happens is we kind of resign ourselves to the fact, well, I don't think he really is calling me. He calls other people. Who are these other people? The ones that go... Those are the ones he's calling. Well, here's what I, yes, I agree with that. Here's what I think he's saying, though. If you trust me, I will provide. But I'm not explaining to you how or why, and you don't get to design it. And that's the biggest one, is you don't get to structure your provision. Now, guys, doesn't that disagree with everything about American culture? Everything about American culture. We put so much emphasis on our bank accounts and our retirement plans and all this other stuff. And this is what we're going to do. And we're going to plan this. And we're going to get this. And we're going to. And, and I'm the same way. I got plans. I do things. I, uh, Lynn and I are, re, are refinancing our house. We're closing Friday. Why? Because I'm planning. I'm planning for the future. I'm doing things. And here's the thing with that as an American culture, we are all about our plans. Everything is about our plans. I remember, I, I'm pretty sure I've used this example. I remember. Um, uh, after 9-11, you know, everything just fell apart after 9-11, right? A guy in our church, a good friend of mine, was a 
pilot for United Airlines. Made good money, had a very, very solid, healthy retirement. Stock options, retirement plan, all kinds of stuff, 401k, layers and layers of retirement that he had had with United for, for a couple decades. About three months after 9-11, he comes to the church and he just sits down in my office and you can tell he's completely deflated. And he said, I just, he said at work today, they just, he used to be a trainer, trained pilots on the Airbus. And when, when he came to my office, he said, they told us at work today, we have no retirement. I was like, what? What do you mean? Like they're, they're not giving you any more retirement? He said, no, they took all of our retirement. We have zero retirement. He, had, I, he said, I had 20 years worth of retirement built up. Hundreds upon hundreds upon hundreds of thousands of dollars and stock options and everything. He said, they took our retirement and our stocks are worth seven cents. They used to be worth $35. He said, what am I going to do? So we just began to talk about it. And I asked him, I said, I said, what is actually changing your life right now? I have no retirement. I said, no, no, no. What changed? What about you changed? You're still breathing air. You're still married. You still got kids. You still have a house. Nothing about you has changed. Numbers on a paper that you were going to be depending on 20 years from now is what changed. He said, yeah, but what am I going to do 20 years from now? The same thing you're doing now. You trust God. You trust God. But guys, that's not our thinking in American society. We don't do that. Of course, then he did come back three months later and said, oh, now they took a 40% pay cut on top of that. He's like, how much more can I take? I said, you can take more. God's big. You can take more. God is big. What about you has changed? He said, well, I'm not going out to eat tonight. I said, okay. That's changed. You guys, think about this. We put so much um, assurance and, and our hope. Our hope is so much often in what we build and what we design, what we um, um, pull away, protect away. And I'm not saying that's bad. I really don't think that's bad. I just have not really in my lifetime ever put a lot of emotional, spiritual hope and retirement plans and stuff like that. I have them, but we don't throw tons of money at them. We don't. I, I, I know for a fact that some of these people on the streets make seventy, eighty thousand dollars $80,000 a year. That's what I'm going to do. <laughs> but I know my corner. Because it has donuts and ice cream. <laughs> Now, I'm joking about some of this, but guys, I really do think there has to come a moment when we say, where do I really put my trust and where do I really put my hope? Jesus sends these guys out. What is their goal? What is their job? What is, why is he sending them out? Why is he sending these 70 out? To let people know who Jesus is. They need to know Jesus. And he's coming behind them to show and to do miracles and all kinds of stuff. They need to know Jesus. And Jesus says, that's your priority. Everything else, what you're wearing, what you're carrying, the money, all the other things, that is not even important. Now, do they later have money? Sure. But he's trying to teach them during this time frame that they go out and they come back, that he can really take care of them and that the gospel can be preached if they'll just do what he tells them. Guys, 
I'll give you something about the angel. And of course, okay, so let's go to Mark 16. He says, go and preach the gospel, and these signs will follow. So these signs that are going to follow, do they follow just the, just the disciples when they went out? No, because they follow the 70 also. So does it just follow the 70? No. Who, what are these, where, what do these, who do these signs follow? You and me. Guys, we don't think like that. That's not how we process Scripture. It's not how we process our life. I'm supposed to, according to Scripture, I'm supposed to preach the gospel and these signs will follow. You will lay hands on the sick and they will be recovered. You'll cast demons out. You'll speak in other tongues. These things will follow the preaching of the gospel. And, and man, we, that doesn't, that's not what the American church looks like today. Somewhere we're just missing it. You guys know my, my hinge scripture for this, why I think, why I think the church today doesn't look like what, what's being described here. Go back to Luke 15. We'll go forward to Luke 15. Um, Luke 15, 1. Again, I think that's the defining scripture for me as a pastor, not as a person. I have other scriptures that define me personal, my personal walk. But Luke 15, 1 says, all of the worst sinners of society gathered around Jesus to hear what he had to say. Until the church makes enough of a shift that the worst sinners of society care what we're saying, we're only preaching to the church, which is not the biblical model. The biblical model is that we, what we are saying, the profound truth and love of Jesus Christ, should be interesting. It doesn't mean everybody gets saved and changes, but it should be interesting to the sinners, not to the church people. And the church people are the ones that we're so interested about. This, this is one of the things that, I, that frustrates me with the, with the culture we built in America is we've got all these superstar preacher people that are, that are writing the books or on, they're on um, all these videos and all this other stuff and the church flocks to hear all these, these uh, preacher people, these personalities. The church flocks to them. Why are not the sinners flocking to them? My opinion of this is because what they are preaching is attractive to the church, but it's not attractive to the sinners. And in Jesus' time, what Jesus said was attractive to the sinners and was revolting to the church. Now, I think there can be a balance. If, if the Jesus is alive on the earth today, I believe that true followers of Jesus would be interested in what he had to say too. I get that. But the religious, the church of his day, were the ones attacking what he had to say, but the sinners were interested. When, when do we begin to say stuff that is Jesus and is attractive to the world? Now, I don't mean placates the world. See, that, this is, this is, the, um, this is the, um, the, the, the oxymoron of this. Is uh, the church believes, church leadership believes, that if I preach stuff that is attractive to the world, placates them, that they will be drawn in. But the world is laughing at the church the whole time. They're laughing at their silly, hypocritical message. They're laughing because it doesn't have power. They're laughing because it's not full of truth. And then, they're, and then they're still going off and doing their other things because there's been no conviction. Jesus was convicting the lost, and they were attracted. That's the major difference in the church today. If we'll truly preach life and truth to the world, they'll, they'll be interested. They may not immediately accept it, but they'll be interested because it's truth. And it's life. And if the biblical model that Jesus is talking about here follows up, one, uh, signs and wonders will happen. Miracles will happen. Why? Because it's Jesus' truth. Not because there's something special about us, but it's Jesus' truth.
And we are, we are focused on that. We're in that. Mike, did you want to say something? Yeah, I think the church. I think oftentimes the church in general does, but leadership does too. But, but yeah, I think the church. We get very comfortable doing our thing, you know, coming to our church buildings, doing our thing, and not interacting with the lost. And when we do interact with the lost, we interact with them on a very topical level, and we don't go anywhere with it. Think back over the last few weeks. COVID's probably not the best time to process this, but think back over the last few weeks when somebody at your work or something, you you found something out about they had a struggle they're going through. I'm not saying Christians, I'm saying non-Christians. Struggle that they're going through, they're going through a divorce, their finances are difficult, they lost their job, something like that. Think about a non-Christian person that you know this information about. Here's the thing. Why do you think the Holy Spirit makes sure you knew that? So you can minister to them. Not so you can say, oh, that's sad. See ya. But you can really minister to them. You can really engage with them. But see, actually engaging with lost people becomes difficult. It becomes messy. It becomes muddy. But, but that's what we got to do. We actually have to engage with them. Walk, walk through life with them. I, I've got a friend here in town right now that when I met him uh, four or five years ago, he was going through some very, very difficult stuff. He was going through an extremely messy divorce that really was not. Um, he will he will take some. Um, some of it was he wasn't a Christian, wasn't the greatest of husbands, but he didn't do all the stuff. And he was going through all this, and 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 I and uh, somebody else hooked me up with him, and we kind of started doing life together. And uh, and to this day, he's he's a good friend of mine. He's a good Christian. He got saved during the process. Um, I got to pray with him. I prayed with him two or three times about this. I don't. That's a different story, but um, and he's a Christian now, and he's doing really good, and he's married to a good woman that him and her both serve Jesus, and um, just a solid couple, just solid couple. Well, it was a little messy the first year. It was a little messy. I remember he came over to the house one time. We're standing out on the back deck, and he just broken. His life is messed up, and he stood there for a couple hours talking, and I'm just standing there talking, and. I had other things I could do, right? Had a guy years ago, Lynn and, we, Lynn and I got a knock on the door, and this guy was going through a divorce also, a difficult time, and he, I knock on the door and open the door, and he's standing there, and he just starts bawling and crying. I don't even know why he's crying. I don't know he's going through a divorce. I don't know anything about it. His wife is cheating on him, all kinds of stuff. And he comes in, I think he stayed at our house three days, something like that. He didn't say a word. He just sat on the couch, and I'd, I'd come in every now and then ask him, and he'd just start crying again. I'm like, don't ask him a question. <laughs> We're running out of Kleenexes. And he literally stayed in my house for three days, and he just sat there and cried for three days. I don't plan on that. You don't plan. You're not, you're not like, hey, Linda, we should have somebody over to the house for the next three days. Not in a good way, but in a really bad way. A really messy way. Could we do that? You don't plan that kind of stuff. I don't think we have to do that stuff all the time, okay? I understand that. And guys, as, as Christians, we've got we to gotta be ready to actually engage people. Engage the lost. Okay, so he continues. 
He says, in whatever house you enter, first say, peace be to this household. And if a son of peace is there, your peace will rest on him. But if not, it will return to you. Okay? Now, this doesn't mean they are a believer. It just means that when, they, when he comes in, and I don't mean a believer as in Christianity because that hasn't really been established, but a believer in God, okay? like a Cornelius kind of person. But what he's saying here is when, when you come in and you say, let me reword it just a little bit. I've come to tell you uh, how to have peace. I've come to tell you about peace. If they respond to that, this is a household you need to engage. If they don't, this is a household you do not need to engage. We could do the same thing today. Now, maybe wording's different, you use different things. But if, but if you say something about um, Jesus, serving Jesus or something, not like a club, you're not beating somebody, but if it comes up in conversation and somebody gets vitriolic with you about that, this is the same category. This is, now, this is where it's difficult for me because I don't mind engaging people. I don't mind engaging them. They can get all, I don't, Jesus is stupid, you know, I don't, I don't care. Specifically, like, if I'm in a hospital, I've done this before. I used to do this, I used to do it for like two or three years. I did it two or three times a week. My pastor made me. And um, going to hospitals and pray, walk into somebody's room, I don't know who they are, and just say, hey, I'm Pastor Scott. Can I pray with you? Just cold turkey. Don't know who they are. Hey, can I pray with you? I only had two people ever in 30 years. I only had two people say no to me. Okay? They don't always like it. They're very uncomfortable, but that's okay. Another great place is on airplanes. I don't mind if somebody, I don't like Jesus, and I'm sitting beside him on an airplane. I hope we are flying to China. Because I really love Jesus. You may not like him, but it's because you don't know him. And I'm going to spend the next 15 hours helping you know him. I'm not going to be abusive. I'm not going to be obnoxious. But I am going to be wise as a serpent. And I'm going to be gentle as a dove. And everything we do, they bring food, and I'm going to bring it around to Jesus. Every time he gets up to go to the bathroom, I'm going to bring it around to Jesus. I don't know how. But here's the thing, guys. I, you know, I'm kind of joking a little bit, but I've done this so many times over the years. It's amazing how the Holy Spirit will give you opportunities. He'll just give you opportunities. I, was, I, was, I got on this flight one time. I was headed to Missouri from, from Colorado. And um, this uh, girl, I say girl, she was a woman, I don't know, maybe, maybe almost 30. She sat down beside me and sits down and she's just sitting there, puts her headphones on and takes out a book and she's looking at her, looking at her phone. And I sit down and I'm, and I, by the way, I don't mind having noise canceling headphones on. If everybody beside me has headphones on, I'm putting them on. If one person leaves them off, I'll be like, okay, God. Unless it's you. You don't need Jesus. You got Jesus. So, so I sat down and this, this girl puts her headphones on and starts doing it. So I'm, I'm getting ready. I'm getting my headphones, doing all this stuff. And, um, and then she takes her headphones off and she just sits there. Plane takes off and I'm, I'm just kind of watching, you know, plane takes off and in the air and she's just sitting there and all of a sudden she goes, <laughs> and I'm like, no, I didn't. I mean, I kind of did, but so I said, are you okay? Yeah, I'm fine. And I said, that's not okay. We're not, we're not just leaving this at fine. You're, you're about to break down and cry. You're not fine. What's wrong? Can I help? 
do something? No. Can I pray for you? Uh-huh. She just starts crying. So then for the next hour and a half, she tells me all about her life. She had, her boyfriend had kicked her out. They were going to get married, but they were living together, all this kind of stuff. Before, she, before we land, she gives her heart to the Lord, and I get on my phone, and, I, and as soon as we're landing, while we're landing and taxiing, I look up a church where she can go to in the city she lives, um, uh, 45 minutes away from the airport, and pray for Actually, we pray two or three times because it, she gives her heart to the Lord, but every time we talk about something else, she breaks down and falls apart again. And so we pray again. And she breaks down and falls apart. We pray again. And everybody around us is really... Get, get, at first, they were very concerned because she starts crying and praying, and I'm like talking to her, and, and I catch myself doing like this, you know, because um, that's who I am. So, so people concerned, but pretty soon you can see the people behind us and in front of us. They're listening. They're paying attention. And I had three or four people as I'm walking off. Thank you for talking to that girl. Thank you for praying for that girl. Guys, you're going to get opportunities, but you've got to be ready you got to be ready to present Jesus. Not present your church, not present stuff, but present Jesus. Don't be afraid of it. Jesus has sent you out, and he is expecting you to do it. So here's the cool thing. He's going to anoint you, and he's going to give you the words to say. You don't have to know all the stuff. Just, just start the conversation. And whatever they say, you can say, well, if I'm in your shoes, I would trust Jesus for this. Something along the lines. My life is upside down. Yeah, my life's been like that too. You know what I did? Trust Jesus. Okay? Peace be to this household. If they're open for peace, if a son of peace is there, you will find, you will, your peace will rest on him. But if not, it will return to you. And remain in the same house. This is not the house that you're going to, okay? Let me explain this. He says if you, if you go to a house and they're, they're about peace, then, then it, it will return to you. If they're not, you move on. But he says, find you a house, remain in the same house, eating and drinking, whatever, whatever they provide for the worker is worthy of his pay. Do not move from house to house. In other words, make this your base of operations. You understand what he's saying? Make this your base of operations. When you find somebody that will bring you in and they will provide for you and they will take care of you and they're of the same mind that you are, you stay there. Okay? Because you need a base of operations. Why is that important? Why is that important? I think that's part of it. So people know when you tell them, well, I'm staying at so-and-so's house. They know where you are. That's one reason. There's some actually very logistical reasons. Exactly. All Starting from scratch is going to take time and energy, resources or something. Focus, you've got to find another house. Those are hours you could be doing what? Witnessing. Telling somebody about Jesus. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. don't be like, well, that's a nicer house. <laughs> They've got a big camel. No. So, so get you a base of operations so you don't spend time, energy, and money doing that. And here's another thing is you need a little retreat. When you come in in the evening, you need to spend some time alone with you and God. You the same, same basic things we do in our life or should be doing in our life today. Tell people about Jesus. Understand that, that you have a, a, a refuge when you come to the house and you can pray and you can talk and... Do some things like that. Okay, so, um, and into whatever town you enter and they welcome you, eat whatever is set before you. That's, that's an important thing. Eat whatever is set before you. Why? <laughs> Says the missionaries to Africa. You guys need to be paying attention here. Why does he say eat whatever is set before you? 
Yeah, don't be a jerk. You know, well, that's not what I eat. Americans are so horrible about that, right? Um, it's rude in some circumstances to do that. Now, if you just, it would be better to say, please not that than puke on their floor. I get that. But for the most part, you, you can deal with a lot of stuff. I, I was in Mexico years ago, and I had this guy with me. It was an intern, and, and um, he, we came up to these, these guys that were con- building, building construction stuff. And, uh, and I, we were witness to him talking, walking through the, where they're working and doing the talking and doing stuff. And, and, uh, and I told him we were going to be having this service over there. And they said, well, you guys come to the service. And they, they had all gathered around and they were starting to eat. And they had this big metal bowl and it had like a tuna and stuff like that in it, onions and all kinds of things. And uh, the intern walked up about that time and he looked into the bowl and he goes, because there was sheep eyes in the bowl, big old sheep eyes. And he looks down and he looks around and one of those guys saw that. And he said, I tell you what, we'll come. this is all in Spanish, but he said, I'll come to your service tonight if he'll eat one of those sheep eyeballs. And I looked over at him, and he's going. <laughs> and, uh, and I said, okay, I'll tell you what, I'll, I'll do one for you. I grabbed a little piece of bread thing, I put eyeball on it, some onion stuff, and popped it in my mouth, and popped crunched it. It doesn't bother me. Food, food doesn't bother me like some people. Pop that thing. The pop did bother me a little bit. I, 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 I. Swallowed it, and, and by this time, he's going... He's, he's almost gagging. He hasn't even... I looked at him. I said, Mark, you could do that for these guys to come to church, couldn't you? Couldn't you put that in your mouth? And he grabs one of those eyeballs, and he, and he stuck the eyeball in his mouth. I believe his fingers touched his esophagus. I know he, the eyeball didn't touch anything but right here. It's the first place the eyeball touched. He put it in there and swallowed it. And all those guys laughed and clapped and all this stuff. And then the guy said, we wouldn't have made you eat it if you didn't want to. We'll still come to church. And about 20 of those guys came to church that night. But it was good for Mark. It was good for Mark to, to know, hey, this is the way, this is People pay attention to every little thing you do. Looking down on people, you don't realize little things that, that to them you're looking down on them. You know, gagging when you eat something that, that their grandmother makes and they grew up eating. You know, it's, okay, so. And, and, uh, and into whatever town you enter and they welcome you, eat whatever is set before you and heal the sick in it. You see how common that is that Jesus says that? Oh, and by the way, heal the sick. He says it as an expectation. And heal the sick. And here's the thing. Here's the thing. You don't see any of the disciples go, wait, whoa, whoa, what do you mean heal the sick? How do we do that? Why didn't they ask that question? What? It was the norm. Everywhere Jesus went. People got healed. The disciples prayed for people that got healed. They had already sent the twelve. He had already sent the twelve out, and they came back, and people had been healed, and demons cast out, and all kinds of stuff. This was the expectation. This was the norm. This is why, as the church, we have got to shake ourselves. We've got to do some praying and fasting. We've got to get in with the presence of Jesus because He wants to do way more in our lives right now than He is doing, and it's not because of Him. It's because of us. He wants to do. Jesus is telling us, every one of us in this room, oh, and by the way, heal the sick. It's the expectation. 
We're the ones who change the story to where heal the sick is not part of it anymore. And he says, heal the sick and say to them, the kingdom of God has come near to you. How, how will they believe you that the kingdom of God has come near to them? Because he just got healed. You don't have to argue it too much. Um, Sunday morning, I was talking to, we're going we're gonna to make this official. We're putting a video together. I think, um, I think the video was made today, actually. Um, uh, Diane Hajak came to me after service, and uh, Christine had prayed for her. Did she tell you this? She didn't tell you this. Um, Christine prayed for her, and she, she's had bad eyesight for a really long time. Okay? She can't hear. She can't see. And she came to me after service, and she's very emotional about this. And she said, I went up, and Christine prayed for me. And she said, when I opened my eyes, she said, I could see things I hadn't seen in years. She said, I haven't been able to read the screens in so long. She says, I don't have a clue what's on the screens, ever. She said, and she's standing back in the back, and she said, I'll read that entire screen to you. She said, across the church, the church over there has a, has a cross on the front of the church. She said, I didn't know that, but I can see it right now. She said, I, I haven't seen in years. And I, I told her, I said, Diane, we want to record this. We want the church to see this. We want both services to, to, to watch this testimony of this. And, and then everybody's going to be lined up in front of Christine. <laughs> pray for Guys, here's the thing. Every single one of us in this room, Jesus has told us, go heal the sick. Just commonplace, just norm. Go heal the sick. And I, I'll get back to, well... You know one of the main reasons more people don't get healed? This is the number one reason why more people don't get healed today. We're not praying for them. We're not asking God. Just start there. Just start. Somebody at work says, I, I, I went to the doctor, this is going on. Pray. Can I pray for you? I guarantee you they are not going to say, uh, no, don't bring your Jesus stuff here. How do I know that? Because they told you they were sick. That's the Holy Spirit bringing them to you to have you pray for them. And then the next day, walk in, ask them, how you doing? I still pray for them again. Pray for them again. Pray for them again. And keep praying for them until you heal the sick. Because Jesus is, that's who he is. That's who he is. Okay. Um, we'll get to the, to the second part next week. That's the first half. So how are we going to pray about this? Pray for boldness. It's a great start. What else? God's rolling something around in your spirit. What, what, do, you, what do you want to pray about? What do you think you need to pray about? Yeah. Yeah, just uh just stay in there kind of mentality. Don't give up. Openness, willingness, I think both of those are huge. I think one of the things also to add to these are all important. One of the things is to pray, God help me to realize I am called by you to do this. And there's and I can't compromise on that. I get, I get so tired and frustrated when I hear pastors preach that only some people are called to the mission field. I'm not saying missions, missions, to be a witness, taking the gospel. 
Only some people are called to witness. That's not true. You rebuke that. I rebuke it in the name of Jesus. We are all called to be witnesses. We are all called. The harvest is plenty. The workers are few. So start right there. Lord, help me realize that I'm called. Send a worker. Okay, start with me. That should be your prayer. Right? Okay, let's pray. God, we submit ourselves to you. We submit ourselves to your gospel. We submit ourselves to um, the Great Commission that you told me to go into all the world and preach the gospel. You told me to go into all the nations and make disciples of the nations. God, you told every one of us in this room this. Help us to, help us to personalize it. Help us to own it. God, to, to, to be willing. Lord, I pray that we'll have a willing, open spirit. That If you say go, we'll just go. If you say go to our next door neighbor, we'll go. If you say go halfway across the world, we'll do it. Lord, give us a, a willingness and obedience to, the, to be a worker in the harvest field. Lord, whatever it takes. God, I know I'm praying for a huge thing here in, in many lives that don't normally think and pray like this. God, stir in us to be open and willing to engage somebody with your gospel. Lord, help us to, to get before you in prayer and fasting so that we will be people that will, that, will, um, that will be empowered by your Holy Spirit. Help us to desire the power of your Holy Spirit so that people will just be healed when we, when we pray for them. At work, they'll be healed. Our next-door neighbor will be healed. Our family member on the phone will be healed. Because we are, we are full of your Holy Spirit. Lord, send us. Help us, to, help us to not be so dependent upon the things that make our life, all the material things and our retirements and everything. Help us to put our hope and our trust in you. And those are just, just sideline things. And use us. In the name of Jesus, use us. And we'll be obedient. Give us boldness. Give us compassion for the lost, desire. Lord, help us to, to stay in there. God, be obedient to your word. We pray all this in the name of Jesus. Amen. All right. That's it. Vacate the premises. <laughs>